Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning on what's going to be just a gorgeous weekend in Colorado, and there is so much going on. I mean, there's fishing and hunting. At this time of the year, there's pick your poison. I mean, fly fishing, conventional fishing. Are you going walleyes or trout? Hunting, we've got uh, we last weekend, I believe, of early teal. We're going to talk about waterfall season later on in the show. We're going to cover that. We're even going to talk about moose. And we're going to talk about Dutch, Dutch oven cooking today on the show, uh, in addition to hunting and fishing. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Also, trivia, of course, you know, has been back. About every few weeks we do a trivia question. There will be a trivia question today, and you can win a $50 gift card. Uh, if you follow me on Facebook, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, there's a pretty good chance you'll know the answer to the trivia question. So uh, that's just a little hint there. But let's go right to the phones now because we have a lot to cover. Joining us from the Blue Quill Angler is Chris Steinbeck. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing well. I know we still have fire danger and we've got some fires burning. We had a little relief a couple weeks ago, but it's going to be a gorgeous weekend. There's so much to do. An outdoor person actually... It's tough to pick, but I got a feeling you're probably leaning towards the fly fishing side. I do. I do. Um, And it's such a great time of year. You know, as we start getting into the fall season here, um, all types of fishing are good. Um, Fly fishing, this is some of our favorite times of year for the next uh, about five, six weeks here. Well, you know, the other thing that happens this time of the year, I mentioned there's a lot of hunting going on. And a lot of those hunters are avid anglers that were on the streams and lakes. Uh, sports has started. Both youth sports are coming back and professional sports are on. So weekends, you're getting a few people staying home watching that. For, so for some of the best fishing of the year, it's some of the least crowded times on the water. It, it is, you know, especially after what we saw this summer. Um, as we get into this fall, it's, uh, yeah, things are starting to get back to normal a little bit. We're still seeing some heavy crowds out there, but um, the fishing is definitely making up for it. That's for sure. Well, what's going on out there? Bring me up to speed. Yeah, so um, now as we're starting to get these cooler nights, this is uh, this is actually a great dry fly time of year. So uh, for fly fishermen, that's usually most people's favorite is seeing the topwater bite, seeing the fish come up and rise to big flies. And um, what's special about right now, Terry, is this is the time of year that anglers could throw big attractor type dry flies those are still working really well on several rivers all across the state um but then they also have opportunities to what we call match the hatch which is just representing the natural mayflies and the smaller midges and the smaller bugs and so you have as an angler options to throw big flies small flies and it's a great time of year to really work on your dry fly skills well you know a lot of times I talk about hopper dropper, and I know we'll mention that later, but a hopper dry or an, or a, any large terrestrial with a, a dry where you're matching the hatch can be a great combination. It's a little easier to follow it in the water. It's not going to spook the fish, and you could get hit on either one. Do you do that, a hopper or a terrestrial with a dry very often? Oh, we and especially this time of year, Ted, that's a great call. It's a great option because, like you said, that you can have options for the fish to hit the big fly or your small dry fly behind the big one. 
And, uh, and what's cool about it is the hatches that we're seeing this time of year, in the morning we're still seeing trichos, and then we're also seeing our fall-bluing olives. And the fall-bluing olives are really, really small, just like the trichos. Uh, in the fly fishing world, we refer to them close to a size 22 or 24, which is just a really small fly. And sometimes when you're fishing those, it's really hard to see them on the water. And that's going to your point, Terry. When you have that big fly up front, you can see that easily. And then you know your trailer flies a couple, two, three feet behind that. Yeah, it really makes it. I like it too because I can splash a terrestrial down. It does it. It helps hide some of my casting de- deficiencies. So <laughs> instead of making that, you know, that that subtle presentation. What about some individual waters? What What are some of the waters you've been fishing, and what are you hearing? Yeah, so um, you know, really fun river to fish right now is the Arkansas. Um, the flows are pretty good up there. They're a little lower, but good for walkwade fishermen. And the fact that this is with these low flows, you can access a lot of the river that throughout the summer you can't just because there's too much water coming down. Um, and so the Arkansas is great, and especially throwing big flies like big stimulators and Amy's ants on the top. Um, great river for that. Uh, the South Platte. The South Platte's been um, actually a little tougher a little bit lately. Um, High up on the drainage, you're talking the Dream Stream and 11-mile canyon. The flows are just really low right now, which makes fishing a little tougher. And then below Cheeseman Reservoir, down through Deckers, we're uh, sitting a little under 600 cubic feet per second, which is relatively high, especially for this time of year. Um, And so the fishing actually down to Deckers is pretty good, um, especially down low. Uh, They're eating a lot of big stoneflies still down there and, um, a lot of PMDs, which is a yellow mayfly we get here about mid-morning. Um, and then the Colorado. The Colorado River um, up north is a great option. Um, high up on that river up near the town of Partial. Those flows are a little low right now, so the fishing's been a little tougher. But down river, all the way down uh, towards Silt, those rivers, or that part of the Colorado is just teeming with fish right now, and it's a great option for anglers. Oh, you know, at this time of the year, it should be good everywhere, and the nights are getting cooler, so the water is cooling down. We're getting a little bit of flows, so, you know, we don't have to be quite as worried about the the water temperature in the river, and the fish are active, and I would think we have to be close to seeing those browns get into the spawn mode and start to chase streamers, or all the fish chase streamers as far as that goes. That's it. That's That's another reason why we love the fall is throwing big streamer rigs. Um... It is some of the best feeling fly fishing in terms of actually feeling the fish strike your fly. And the fall season is the best all year. And uh, it could be first thing in the morning. It could be on those afternoons where you have a little cloud cover. It could be in the evenings. It's just streamers are great. Um, And like you said, Terry, the browns are going to start spawning here in just a few weeks. So um, they get usually really aggressive pre-spawn and uh, and post-spawn for that matter, too, which we'll see towards the uh, last half of October. Now, do you see a little reluctance sometimes in fly fishermen, especially beginners, to throw streamers? Because fishing a streamer can be, you know, it's more almost like saltwater fly fishing. It's so different than typical river fishing where you're letting the river make the presentation. You have to bring that streamer alive. I think sometimes fly fishermen struggle with that. 
We do, Terry. We um, Not everybody, but a lot of guys do because in fly fishing, a lot of our presentation, we call it a dead drift where you have zero movement on your fly, you have a little slack in your uh, drift. But when you're throwing streamers, there is a hesitation for anglers because it's a lot heavier of a rig to cast. And a lot of people just don't do it enough and they don't feel comfortable with the tactics and how to be successful with throwing streamers. Well, you know, I think another thing, too, is, you know, used to be we said everybody should get a five-weight fly rod to start out in Colorado. And modern fly rods, the fly rod manufacturers have actually made the rods pretty quite a bit faster. And this is my personal opinion. But I think they've overspeeded the rods a little bit where a five-weight is closer to a six, that kind of thing. But you're seeing a lot of fishermen fish now with three- and four-weight rods consistently and they can be a little light to handle a streamer at times. Do you think that's right? Yeah, you know, most streamer rods, um, like exactly what you're saying, that if, especially if you have a fast-action rod, a five-weight could be good for that. Uh, but if you jump up and you get even a six-weight, that gets you just a little extra backbone behind your rod, and that allows you to ca- cast a little bit easier, a little bit further, um, and it handles those big, well, big uh, rigs really well. And a six-weight, and it's not just for streamers. You know, you could use it during big water early in the summer, and um, great options this time of year especially. Well, yeah, punching through the wind when you need to. You know, a lot of people, I think, they think you should match the rod to the fish. Well, there's some of that. You don't want to, you want to have enough rod to handle it. But really, because uh, we've got a lot of new fly fishermen out there, my philosophy is you need to match the fly rod to what you're throwing so you can be efficient. Is that kind of how you bring people along at the Blue Quill? That's exactly. You know, when we teach them, and um, especially, you know, we do a lot of streamer-only fishing where we teach people how to efficiently fish those rigs. Um, and it is, and it's matching your rod. To um, Sometimes you match towards the fish if you're going especially high altitude. But a lot of times it's more of how you're fishing. Um, and whether you're fishing subsurface nymphs and you want a little bit longer rod, um, like a 10 or 11 foot rod, or like we're talking about now, it's own streamers and having that extra little backbone. So matching up to how you're fishing is important. And with some people, you know, you get into some technical aspects of fishing, especially fly fishing when you get into that detail. So if anybody has any questions, give us a call up here at the shop and we're happy to walk you through where you like to fish and match up a good rod to how you fish personally you know speaking of good rods um what if somebody walked into the shop and they said hey i want to start fly fishing how much do they have to spend and where would you uh what kind of rig would you kind of lead them towards yeah so um you could spend as much or as little as you'd like um generally speaking for about two hundred dollars you can get a whole rod a reel a line set up and you have a warranty on the rod in case it breaks, they'll fix it for you. Um, and so for a couple hundred bucks, there's a couple packages through Reddington, which is a partner company of Sage, which is big in fly fishing. And they have incredible packages. And these are rods that are not going to be obsolete for you. Um, you don't have to break the bank getting them. And I've never, ever seen a fish that understands what rod the angler's using. You know, they don't care. And, uh, and as you get going, um, yeah, a couple hundred dollars is usually the mark. I'd be careful going anything too cheap because fly rods do break every once in a while. They get shut in a car door. Things happen. 
And so a lot of times if you spend just a little bit more money, you get that warranty with a rod, which is really important. Remind me off the air sometime to tell you the story about when Karen and I were first getting together and she broke one of my fly rods. She didn't know it was under warranty, and I had a lot of fun with that for a long time. So <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll tell you that whole story someday. So um, She's listening right now because she produces the show, so she's probably going to come in the studio and slap me here pretty soon. <laughs> well, Karen, I can't wait to hear all about it. <laughs> Hey, uh, any any other any other things going on as far as you know? If you were headed out, let's let's do this. If you're going one where you had to drive a little bit, and one that was close to Denver, you want to go this week. The weather's going to be great. Where would you go? I if I was going to drive a little bit, I'd head either I'd head down towards the Gunnison area, the Gunnison River, the Taylor River, um, a little bit further of a drive. But excellent fall fishing, um, especially on the Gunnison River. You can start getting the fall kokanee runs, which um, is just tremendously fun to fish for in the fall season. And, um, yeah, so that's a great option. Um, and the Arkansas, I'd say the Gunnison area or, like, the Buena Vista, Salida area, great options right now. Now, if you want to stay a little closer to home, um, you know, within an hour, Denver, Deckers is a really good option on the lower south Platte. And if you want to even stay really close to home, right down I-70 is Clear Creek. And Clear Creek in the fall is awesome fishing. Great dry fly fishing with big attractor dry flies. Um, fish aren't huge, but it's a great place to go practice your skills. And especially if you only have two, three hours to fish, go up there in the evenings and have fun. Uh, you're absolutely right. Chris, if people want to get a hold of you for more information, how would they do that? You got, if anybody's got questions, call us up here at the shop at 303-674-4700. We're here to help with any kind of questions. It could be what's fishing good, what flies do I need to throw, even down to, hey, I can't catch a fish. What am I doing wrong? We're here to help you any step of the way. Um, you can follow us on social media at Blue Quill Angler, both Instagram and uh, Facebook. And our website at bluequillangler.com, where we keep up-to-date fishing reports on every local river around. And, yeah, and so please, if you have any questions, don't hesitate. Give us a call. We're here to help. You still have openings for guide trips? We do. We do. We'll be guiding hard all the way through early November and the fall season. I right, said so you want to have some fun, you want to learn fall tactics, great time to hire a guide right now. Oh, it's an awesome time. Just so you know, Karen just came in and stuck her tongue out at me. So, <laughs> hey, I love it. We're out, of t- we're out of time, my friend. But thank you for joining us. Great information, as always. Uh, Terry, thank you very much for having us. And everybody out there, have fun this fall. Good luck hunting. Good luck fishing. All right. Chris Steinbeck from Blue Quill Angler. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to switch things up and We're going to talk about Dutch oven cooking and then the conditions at one of our local state parks right here in Colorado on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Growing up and still having fun, whatever your outdoor activities, fishing, hunting, kayaking, you know, even grilling. Stop by Jack's first. They'll take care of all your needs. And speaking of Jack's, we have a trivia question 
today sometime, and we're going to give away a $50 gift card to Jack's Outdoors. And the answer to that question might be on my Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. So I'm not saying you should go look there, but it might give you a better chance. Let's go right to the phones now. And joining us from uh, Jackson Lake State Park, she's a pretty regular contributor, comes on pretty often. That's Darby Shanks. Good morning, Darby. Good morning. It's great to have you on. It's going to be a beautiful weekend. I'll bet it's going to be a beautiful weekend out at Jackson Lake. This warm weather, you guys, um, well, first, what, what are the conditions at Jackson Lake? I assume water's low and you're probably not launching boats anymore. That is correct. Uh, we've been out of water for over a little over a month for boating. Um, we do still allow hand launch um, exempt A and S exempt boats, um, such as like paddle boards, canoes, kayaks, um, but nothing with a motor. Um, but it is getting smaller. Um, they are still um, letting some out for irrigation. Um, it, what it sounds like or looks like, it's almost down to Deadpool. But um, there's still plenty of surface acres out there to. To recreate, if you can get out there, sometimes the shoreline can be a little muddy, so we always say take precaution when you're getting out a little farther. But there is plenty of um, other opportunities as well. I mean, there's we have plenty of camping going on. Um, if you do plan on coming on a weekend, make sure you have a reservations because we are still booking up um, all of our campsites. Um, and then also something that uh, just came across our plate yesterday was we have a rare sighting of a bird um, out here. So we have quite a few bird watchers uh, looking for that particular bird. So there's good opportunities well, for things. Well, well, there's lots to do at um, at Jackson Lake. In fact, uh, I want well, you've got a big event coming up, your your Dutch oven. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's so many things. You know, I mentioned. You have one of the top 10 beaches for state parks in the United States. We've still got some warm weather in the 80s. Even, you know, the water's warm, but even if you don't want to swim, just sit on that beach and uh, you can pretend you're out at the ocean for the people that aren't making those trips because of COVID. And something else that I want to bring up that you guys just officially got your, is it dark sky or black sky? I think it's dark sky. The viewing of the stars out there is phenomenal. Yes, it was the dark skies um, accreditation from the IDA. So, yeah, um, I mean, it, we've always had good skies. It's just we got a good accreditation now. And um, But, yes, um, a lot of people come out here, and we kind of direct them to either, our, like, our boat parking lot because there's a lot of uh, area. Um, and still with our Northview campgrounds still open for about two more weekends, um, but our north campgrounds will close at the end of September. Um, so, yeah, anywhere in the park, but if you can get away from those trees, it's a lot better viewing opportunity. But right now, yeah, some days, you know, it can be a little sketchy with the the wildfire haze that is out here, but there's opportunity. Well, I know, and as that clears out, we're supposed to get some wind changes this weekend to clear some of that out. And people who've never gone to an area where you get away from the pollution of the city lights, mm-hmm. uh, it, the sky the sky is you know, you see a star, and maybe you see the Big Dipper in Fort Collins where I'm at in Denver. You hardly see anything. But what you see when you get into a dark sky area, it looks like the stars go forever. It's just amazing, isn't it? It is. It is. It's just really incredible. And you mentioned you got camping. And, you know, Jackson can be a pretty good fishing lake. It's not maybe the best shore fishing lake. But if you wanted to get out there in a kayak right now, you're not going to have any boat wakes 
Uh, I'll bet you could have just a great time out there on a kayak fishing and, and camping. You mentioned you, there's a lot to do. And you have hunting opportunities near the park, too. You could either camp at the park. I think there's some hunting right next to it. Is there any hunting right on, or is it all just adjacent? Um, there's limited hunting in the state park. Um, so north of our boat ramp, we allow for small game and waterfowl along the shore edge right now because um, the campgrounds are still open right now, so you can't really be hunting in the campground. Um, and then we have two ponds north of our Northview campground as well. So I imagine um, we had people out there this morning probably doing some teal hunting for the last weekend of that. And then, of course, we do have the Jackson Lake Wildlife Area and the Andrake Wildlife Area that are both adjacent to the park. And on weekends, there are reservations for both of those properties. Um, that was uh, The reservation is new for the Jackson Lake Wildlife Area for weekends and legal holidays. But during the week, as it is on a first-come, first-serve. And then, of course, Andrick is reservation only, weekends, Wednesdays, and legal holidays. Um, but there are plenty of uh, ponds in both of those areas. Well, our next segment, uh, Jared Lamb's going to join us from Parks and Wildlife, and we're going to talk waterfall hunting in Colorado. Tremendous opportunities. But right now, I know we need to get to this something near and dear to your heart. You have it every year. And that's your Dutch oven cook-off and usually a chili cook-off, too. Are you doing both or Dutch oven? or Tell me about what's going on. It's both of them. So we have all the categories with the Dutch oven and, and chili cook-off. So um, five, well, it's really six of our categories are basically Dutch oven base. So they have to be done on site um, that, starting that morning. So And, in, and uh, the plan is supposed to be September 26th. So this next Saturday is the plan and then we also have the chili so there's the chili for this year it, um, people can do that beforehand or cook it on day that site um, so it's it's fun for the whole family um, you get to go outside and be at a campsite of your own and get to do your own cooking so everybody gets their own campsite and stuff like that to do the this cooking opportunity and it's more about fun you know um, so we have judges that come in to volunteer and, I mean, it'll be a little bit different this year because with the social distancing and um, wearing our face masks and stuff like that. But um, we hope to have a good old time. What are some of the most unusual or best things you've seen people cook in a Dutch oven? I think it's what's creative. Um, I mean, like last year we had a guy that made a, in our wild, we have a Pacific wild game slash fish category since we are in um, the outdoors and and Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, so it has to be an animal that you can hunt or fish in the state of Colorado. So last year we had a guy do a mountain lion. Um, that was interesting. Uh, I had never got to try mountain lion, so that was the very first time. <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't like either. People never get to try elk or deer very often because they're, you know, they don't have anybody in their family, so they always think that's neat. Um, we've had, I can't remember the name of the dish, but it was like a... Uh, like a creamy dish, like uh, lobster bisque, but it was made with tra uh, trout. Um, that was several years ago. That was it was really good. Um, so when we've had some people do like themes, um, like they did everything that was related to like a, a Mexican dish. So from chimichangas and their side dish uh, was like Spanish rice, and then to that you know like a Mexican cornbread, and then I can't remember what they had for. A dessert, but of course, each category is is 
its own category, and then uh, we hope to award the top three uh, places in each category. And then we also have one that's for youth. So anybody under the age of 16 get to, you know, they don't have, so they don't have to participate against the adults um, and try to have the kids learn. Uh, but we have to have, of course, adult supervision watching them because some of those Dutch ovens can be very heavy and hot. Um, so the kids, um, we always we always like seeing those kids out here doing that, and they have fun. It's it's amazing if you do a lot of outdoor cooking or camping, go to this just to see what people cook in a Dutch oven. A Dutch oven is such a versatile outdoor cooking vessel. Um, we're almost out of time. Is there more information on your website or Facebook page? Not a whole lot. Um, if anybody has any questions, they can uh, reach out to the park or give us an e- uh, send us an email. Um, but we have pretty much for the participants of, I don't have any more sites down there to, um, to sign anybody up anymore, but people are more than willing to come out to the park. Um, but you still have to pay all fees to get into the park. Um, and then the judging for each dish starts about 1230 and continues through four. And then after that, we will open it, it up to free tasting. Um, we just encourage everybody um, with the COVID-19 going on to please, you know, social distance and be respective to others. All right. Sounds great, Darby. Sounds like a great event. Uh, and that's next Saturday. Um, and I hope you get a great turnout. And I'm, I can't wait to hear some of the things people cook. Thanks for joining us, Darby. Thank you. Have a wonderful weekend. You bet. Darby Shanks, Jackson Lake. A lot to do out there. Terry Wicksham Outdoors is brought to us in part by Jack's Outdoors. We're going to take a quick time out, and then we're going to talk more waterfall right here on Terry Wicksham Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Terry Wicksham Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. You know, 65 years serving the outdoor public with locations in Fort Collins, Loveland, Lafayette, Broomfield, and now Cheyenne, in addition to their farm and uh, their farm stores. If you just uh, if you just need anything outdoors, stop by Jackson, look around. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Jared Lamb. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing good, and Darby kind of teased our topic a little bit, didn't she? She talked about the, some of the areas up there where you can do waterfall hunting by Jackson Lake, but um, that's certainly not the only place. Colorado, I don't know if people realize, first of all, what is there, about seven or eight months out of the year you can hunt waterfall in Colorado? Yeah, that's the cool thing about, about Colorado and waterfowl is literally you can hunt eight months out of the year chasing birds, so it's pretty darn awesome. Take us through some of the opportunities. What is available in Colorado? I mean, just you don't have to have yeah, the exact so, dates, but, but. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so, yeah, it starts about September. September 1, we have an early goose season that starts running. And then we jump right into teal season like Darby was talking about. Um, and then we go into our regular duck seasons um, and kind of into our goose seasons. And um, towards the end of the year, we can wrap up with some late season birds and then uh, we're pretty fortunate to have a uh, snow goose conservation season that runs into the spring. So just a wide variety of opportunities for hunters. Well, you know, with a lot of new people going outdoors, getting into the outdoors, uh, hunting is an opportunity. And I think shotgun hunting, where whether it's upland game or waterfall, kind of is a better, a lot of people feel a little more comfortable easing into that than maybe doing a big game hunt right away. And it really does prevent present a lot of opportunities uh, we actually have, what, two flyways in Colorado. Is that right? 
Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, Colorado, we're pretty fortunate. We're, um, you know, I guess most people think of Colorado as, you know, big game elk and deer, but the waterfowl opportunities are just tremendous. We're fortunate to, like you said, have two flyways. We have the Pacific and the Central Flyway in Colorado. And so those two different flyways offer kind of a wide array of different um, waterfowling opportunities. So, Yeah, and we, we also get, I think we're very fortunate that we get both resident and migratory waterfall that so that keeps us with birds all the way through the seasons right where some of the starting the season when the resident birds are still here i, I hear a lot about the san juan and 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 uh, north park what what are some of your favorite places i know you're an avid uh, waterfall hunter where do you like early in the year <laughs> yeah so um colorado we're, we're it's pretty it's pretty cool um you're exactly right up in north park um we have a great uh, breeding population of ducks up there and then down in the San Luis Valley uh, we have a great um, breeding population down there as well with natural wetlands still intact which is key to uh, the nesting success and brood um, raising of birds so those are two really good opportunities for local birds and then as you said um, we start getting into our migrating um, ducks and geese so these are geese um, and ducks that are um, breeding up in the prairie pothole region so Canada and North Dakota um, and then they, uh, due to weather, they start pushing south to spend um, spend the, the winter um, in the warmer climates. And so, just as you said, we're very weather dependent in the waterfowl world. Um, but it provides an opportunity throughout the year. Um, we kind of get new, fresh birds um, with each push of a cold front, and uh, it gives hunters a really good opportunity. Yeah, it it really does. Um, it just you get the resident birds and the migratory birds. You get new birds. When when does when do the the resident birds start leaving typically, and or do some of them stay year round? You know, there's there's definitely some that probably stay year round. Um, I'm fortunate enough to shoot a, a banded duck, um, so a band that had been placed in his leg to track its movements, and uh, I harvested that bird in late January, and he had only gone a couple hundred miles, so he didn't really he didn't really move all that much. Um, but usually, um, you know, the first first couple of cold snaps is when we start losing our resident birds. Um, but that also means that we're starting to get recharged with migratory birds. Um, the cool thing also about Colorado is we kind of sit in the middle of the flyway for the birds returning to Canada to breed. And so depending on the year and the weather, a lot of times we'll see a reverse migration at the end of the year. So we'll have an opportunity to shoot some of those birds as they're heading back up to the breeding grounds. And so it's just another opportunity for hunters in Colorado, which is pretty special and unique. Now, if somebody wants to get started hunting waterfall in Colorado, I suppose you could just get a shotgun and go do some jump shooting earlier in the year. But what would you recommend that they need probably as basics to get them going? Yeah, that is exactly how I started with jump shooting. Um, you know, you don't need any decoys or calls, just a, a good set of eyes and a shotgun. Um, so it, it's a good it's a good starting point. Um, where I really fell in love with the, the industry, I guess, is um, decoying ducks. And it, it, there's just something about seeing a group of ducks coming into your decoy spread and you're talking with them. It's just a really special moment. And it doesn't take a lot of decoys. Um, some of my favorite decoy spreads are three decoys. Um, so, you know, a half dozen, you can get decoys super cheap nowadays. It's, it's amazing. And then calls, you don't need the two or $300 call. You can go with the $20 or $30 duck call and sound just the same. So 
getting into it, there's there's tons of opportunity. Um, it's just you, you got to get there, and um, the, the best way to do it is just get out there and learn. Don't be afraid to make mistakes because th- it's going to happen, and that's how you get better is learning from your mistakes. You know, it doesn't hurt to book a trip with a guide either because you'll learn so much on that first trip that little nuances you wouldn't think about that can, can really help you. But it, you know, there's something about, you mentioned the calling, the birds, something about calling sports, whether it's elk or waterfowl or turkeys, when you're talking and in that animal's comfort zone and communicating with them, it really makes it special, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is. It, I can't even put it into words. For me, the waterfowl anymore isn't even about harvesting the birds. For me, it's 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 the communication and talking with those birds and getting them comfortable and getting them to land in your decoy spreads. That's that's the cool part about waterfowl for me. And the, if if you have an opportunity, going with a guide is just they know what they're doing. They know where the birds are. Um, you, you'll just kind of get get a eye opening experience and kind of see what you need and you can take little things and go do good good things with it now if i am heading out on my own there is quite a bit of um some of it's private land some of it's public where are some of the places i could go uh you know we talked about the jump shooting in the wetlands around north park and uh, san luis valley but what about up the platte river and migratory birds are there is there quite a bit of opportunity yeah, that so waterfowl. Um, it's definitely uh, it's access can be difficult. Um, there's a lot of leased property for waterfowl, um, but there's still plenty of opportunity out there. Our state wildlife areas um, offer some really good hunting along the on the South Platte River in Northeast Colorado. Um, in addition, the walk-in access program is really opening up quite a few agricultural fields um, that historically we didn't have access to, and now you'll find geese in those fields, and there's an opportunity to harvest some geese there. So um, if you go to our hunt atlas, um, I, I do a lot of um, scouting from the from the web and looking at ponds and little sloughs. Um, just just go look and explore. Um, the biggest, I guess, suggestion I have for people is scouting is so important in waterfowl. You can have the nicest decoys and the best calling, but if you're not set up where those birds want to be, you're not going to find success. So go out and, and find where they want to be, and that, that's where you're going to find your success. Well, we're going to we're running out of time, but we're going to cover a lot of waterfall as we get into the season and try to keep people updated. I mean, you need a small game license and a state and federal duck stamp and a hip number. But after that, like you said, get a shotgun, go do some jump shooting, just set your expectations and learn. And I think once you get into it, you'll find it's a great way to spend a weekend, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is truly there's there's no words to describe it. The the chills I get every time I see a group of birds comes in is it's just tremendous. So I highly recommend it. Jared, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem, Terry. You have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you so much. We will uh, take a quick time out uh, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk something really interesting is we're going to talk about moose in Colorado. Uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Take it easy by the Eagles. Great, great song. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, which is brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoors, locations up and down the Front Range in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Let's go to the phones. And joining us from Peak to Creek Films is Sean Ender. Good morning, Sean. Morning, Terry. Thanks for having me on. 
Hey, you did a really interesting project called Colorado Moose that's going to be airing on PBS in a few weeks. We'll talk about how people can watch it in a minute, but it uh, sounds like an, I got to watch it. It's a great piece. I did get to see it. But what made you decide to do a documentary on Colorado Moose? What was the driving force? Thanks. Yeah. I, um, so when I started my company, Peach Creek Films, I uh, got a new camera and I honestly just wanted to get some uh, time behind the camera and went to an area that I had seen moose growing up and spent three days pretty much just filming moose. And it was such a um, incredible experience to just be able to sit with them for hours on end and watch them you know, move about the landscape and, and kind of be comfortable, um, you know, just, just kind of letting things play out in front of you that um, that I kind of delved into that, that story a little bit more and learned about the reintroduction and, and what they've done to areas uh, like North Park and Walden, the, the moose viewing capital of Colorado. And kind of then I, you know, started talking to some of the, the managers and learned a lot about how wildlife and moose are managed and it's really interesting to see um you know how how they strike that balance of you know creating opportunities for hunting and and the viewing public and also managing that with with the ranching community that that also uses that land to make a living now the reintroduction of the moose which um didn't exist in colorado for like a hundred years is one of probably the most successful reintroductions of uh, some kind of an animal or game animal, especially to Colorado. Uh, how long, it, what did, how did they get started and how long did it take to get to a good place? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is, it is a success story and it's really cool to be able to tell that story. Um, they, they spent a few years obviously researching and, and, and North Park and, and getting public input on if, 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 moose would be a good thing to add to the wildness of that place i mean it's such a wild place in its own um and they were they they got the general sense that uh, more people signed on that this was going to be a cool thing to try out and so they they reintroduced the first 12 in 1978 and the next 12 in 1979 and that's such a small population that if there were problems that they could they could mitigate that pretty easily but like you said, it, it turned into such a wild success and, you know, the, the populations grew and then other parts of Colorado uh, decided, you know, we want some moose too. They had a, a subsequent transplant to different parts of the state, Creed being one, uh, the Grand Mesa got a transplant. Um, and it was, you know, 1978 until uh, probably the mid to late 80s when they finally uh, had the first um, hunting season in, in North Park where they, they had had, it had been a success, they had established um, sustainable populations, and it was okay to, you know, take a few animals and kind of give back to that hunting community that sort of puts the bill for all of this. That's, you know, that's a great point, because the North American model of supporting outdoor resources has always been hunting and fishing licenses. There's other sources of income, but a lot of them are excise taxes that come from the hunter and fishermen also. And the people who just go wildlife watching, the people who enjoy camping in the outdoors, a lot of that habitat and management exists because of hunters. And I think in Colorado, the moose, it was always known that they would want some hunting opportunities to give back uh, 
chances for those uh, sportsmen to have another activity because their dollars supported this introduction. I think we're up to like, aren't we close to like 3,000 moose in Colorado now? Yeah, that's correct. It's a, that's you're about three thousand statewide. Um, obviously, North Park is going to have the the biggest population, and they're at about five or six hundred um, animals there. And that's right about where they want to be. They want to keep that population around that level. Um, you know, they they have very little um, bad interactions um, with with moose. Um, that what problems they do have. They're they're pretty good at mitigating those issues because there are so few of them, and and yeah, and and to keep that population where they want it, you know, where we have tags. But even then, and it's still, it's I'm sure you know, it's extremely hard to get a moose tag. It's it's a once in a lifetime to get a bull. Um, it takes anywhere from, you know, seven years and beyond to get a cow tag. It's um, you know, twelve to twenty years to get a bull tag. But you know the the it's a, it's an incredible opportunity. Right? I was lucky enough to be able to film a moose hunt um, with the Parks and Wildlife Youth Outreach Program. Um, it's a it's a pretty incredible opportunity to 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 go after an animal like that. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's not it's that's part of it being a success story is that they have sustainable populations and we can we can manage them pretty well. Now we did show um, some of that youth hunt in the. Uh in the video i watched it and it's fantastic we're going to run out of time pretty soon but quickly what were a couple of the biggest surprises you found when you were making the documentary i think just spending so much time with moose and kind of getting to learn some of their little uh unique uh, how they behave and you know they they play um like like other ungulate species they'll they'll run around and they'll they'll buck and rear and um to see See some of the bigger moose uh, getting close to September, um, you know, scraping the velvet off and, and, and how they interact with each other. And, and, you know, moms with calves that are, you know, a week to 10 days old uh, chasing, chasing other cows and bulls away because they don't want anything near there, that little calf. Um, I mean, one of the coolest scenes I was able to film was a mom trying to cross a river with her calf and the, the, the calf got swept away um, and uh, she ended up being fine. And, and, but, you know, just kind of, she calf swimming back into frame and, and mom, uh, you know, kind of nudged her along and helped her back to shore. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw that scene. That was pretty neat. You know, one of the things, and I, I want to make sure we get time to give you the information where it's mm-hmm. going to air, but was how the moose adapted to the, um, we always think of them as, in the in the lowlands eating willows but they adapted to eat other brush didn't they yeah and that's been extremely surprising to uh managers where they found especially in areas like the grand mesa where they're they're largely eating oak brush and and aspens they're living on 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 the uplands there and it's i mean uh, moose have moved into south park and that's been a surprise and you find them um you know in in sage flats and it's it's pretty cool to see um their their adaptability now one thing because of you know needing to manage them um they can't eat straight grass hay so that's one reason they need to mitigate issues so that you know ranchers aren't getting their haystacks eaten but also a moose if they only eat hay is is going to die of starvation because they can't digest it so um you know keeping keeping moose away from those hay yards is pretty important now we've only got about a minute or two left but the 
the economic impact has far exceeded what anybody could have hoped for in these areas, hasn't it? Yeah, and and Walden is a great area to go to. I mean, it's a it's a great place to visit, and a lot of people go there to see moose, or a lot of people. It's a great place to recreate with a good chance of seeing moose. And, and you know, every I love sharing stories about moose because everybody I talk to about moose who has seen one always has a story of you know the first time they saw a moose, or I saw this big bull feeding in a lake, and it's really cool. It's always an unforgettable experience when you get to see and interact with and photograph moose. Well, we're out of time, but your your documentary is an hour long. It's going to air on PBS in about six weeks. Give us the date and times if you have them. Yep, Rocky Mountain PBS is going to be November 5th at 8 p.m., um, and you can kind of check in on the film. Uh, Facebook is at CO Moose Film, and then my company on Instagram is Peach Creek Films, and I'll, I'll post about it and, and keep people in the loop, but that's where you can, um, you know, stay informed and, and kind of reach out if you want to. And what was the date again? Uh, November, November 5th at 8 p.m. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Sounds like it was a great project, and I, it is a great video to watch, folks. I watched it. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, thank you, Terry. Appreciate it. You bet. You bet. Uh, Sean Ender, great moose documentary. Speaking of that, we're going to talk hunting. We're going to take a quick time out. We come back, Nate Solinsky is going to join us, and he just happens to have been involved in helping with the harvest of a moose just recently, I believe. And, of course, he'll talk about deer and elk and everything else on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.